morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to the Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field and the burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took a reed and they struck him on the head and they mocked him. They stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the truth unchanged from the dawn of time. That truth is your truth, and it's truth that we rest in, and it's truth in the person of Jesus that we find. And even this morning, as we look at a text like this that is gloomy, it is sad, it it is the end of what has otherwise been an incredible life for Christ. To think of his miracles and all the things that he had done, and now to see him treated as a as a common criminal we thank you lord for this text what it reveals to us about christ and what it reveals to us about who we are in jesus name amen 
We've spent some time over the last couple of months looking at the Passion Week. Again, the last week uh, of Jesus' life, kicking off here with uh, uh, Palm Sunday, like we are this morning, kicking off the week of Holy Week, all the way to where we are now. So this morning, we have come to the first Good Friday. And you remember that during that Holy Week, that Passion Week, that Jesus had taught His disciples, even with that illustration of the fig tree, that was uh, uh, in the bounds of Holy Week. You remember that he goes and he cleanses that temple and he condemned the religious rulers and he has even wept over the city of Jerusalem after he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on that donkey and they are screaming Hosanna to the son of David and they're putting their cloaks and the palm branches all over the place on the ground as he is riding on that donkey. You remember that he wept as he came after into the city. The, the week has gone by so quickly, I can imagine, for him and for his disciples, where he had the, the Last Supper on that Thursday night. You remember that he prayed in Gethsemane following that, and then now we come to the morning on Good Friday. And as you look even in our text, the verses that we just read, it really is incredible to, to fly over it and to see all of the things that they did to Jesus. They took counsel against him to put him to death. They bound him. The Jews delivered him to the Romans. They questioned him. They accused him. They scourged him. They delivered him to be crucified. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him. They spat on him. They struck him with a stick. And we hear all of those things that they did to Jesus. And I think that we struggle with it all because of how familiar we are with this text or this account in the Bible. Even in light of how graphic it is, we are, we are so familiar with this text that it, it almost doesn't cause us to flinch. I'm really not a fan of horror movies, but uh, I, I'm sure that if you, if you watch a horror movie for the first time, you, you flinch and freak out and cry and scream and you can't go to sleep for the next week. But if you watch that same movie a hundred times, it doesn't have the same impact anymore, does it? And in the same way, we, we kind of get desensitized to a text like this one. Because we know Jesus was taken by the Jews. We know that he was given over to the Romans. We know that he was slapped around. We know that he was spat on. They know, we know that he was stripped and they beat a crown of thorns into his head. But don't let your familiarity with a text like this and the 2,000 years that have separated us from these events throw you off from how barbaric all of this truly is. How much do you have to hate somebody to do these kinds of things to them? Or how angry of a person or how desensitized as a person do you have to be to do these kinds of things to a person? When you consider the religious rulers in this time, how much do they have to hate Jesus to to push to kill him, to hand him over to the Romans? To, to sit back as one of your own, of your own ethnicity, is, is being scourged by another people group that you can't even stand with the Romans. To incite and to convince the crowd to, to choose Barabbas over Jesus. They very obviously hated Christ. But then on the other side, when you think of God, what motivated God to allow all of these things to happen? What motivated God to allow Christ to undergo such punishment and scourging and betrayal and all of that? So you have the utter hate of the Jews that motivated them. But then on God's side, you have utter love 
You have the love of God allowing these things to happen to His beloved Son for sinners like you and me. Romans 5.8 But God commended His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so how much did the Jews have to hate Him to do this to Him? But how much did God have to love Him to allow these things to happen? Love us for these things to happen to His Son. Like I mentioned, I'm not going to sit too long in the first 10 or so verses of Judas' suicide and his regret because I want to get where Jesus is standing before Pilate. But Judas apparently sees all of the things that have happened to Jesus. At this point, Satan has left Judas, which is why Judas, I think, all of a sudden changes his mind upon seeing that Jesus is condemned. He goes back to the religious rulers. He throws his silver that he betrayed Jesus for. He throws it in the temple, and he totally regrets what he has done. And the one thing that I have to say about Judas that applies to all of us here in regard to these first 10 verses is that there is a huge difference between changing your mind and having a true and genuine heart change. There's a a grand canyon between changing your mind on something and having a genuine heart change. Judas gets himself into an insurmountable hole and he cannot get out of it on his own power. He feels bad about it. He changes his mind. He wants nothing to do with the betrayal that he has committed. But you notice that the changing of his mind doesn't provide any relief to his heart. The only way relief could have come to his heart is if he had repented before God. And seeing as he didn't repent in his heart, the only way he could relieve his miserable condition was to kill himself. So he betrayed Jesus to the death, but he beat Jesus to the death. And certainly without the assurance that today he would be with Christ in paradise. So as we continue to the area of verse 11 in the text, what has happened is that, of course, Judas has betrayed him. The the chief priests and the elders, they have all decided that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. And so now they hand Jesus over to this man named Pilate. So this is Pilate, who's well known. He's the Roman governor over this area in Palestine. He's the main guy in charge. As, as we've talked about before, the Roman Empire was at this point growing and it had exceeded the point, point of Palestine. And they had established their own man in Pilate to be the governor of this area. And what this did for the Jews was it created a sort of red tape. They, they couldn't just... Uh, condemn Jesus and kill him on their own, they actually had to go through the Romans. So it created that red tape for them to go through because they couldn't do it on their own. They needed Roman permission, essentially. And so the Jews decide that he is guilty. They hand him to the Romans, who wash their hands of the situation, and then Jesus is off to be crucified. And I want you to notice, and the outline is on the back of your bulletin this morning, that Jesus opened not his mouth when he was before the Romans. And I've taken those headings on the back of your bulletin. I've taken them from Isaiah 53, what match up with this text. But he opened not his mouth. Look with me again at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. So he does answer him there. But look at verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer Then Pilate said to them, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And we saw this to be true back in Matthew 26 as well, when he was before the religious rulers. Jesus remained silent. And Jesus' silence really should be incredible to all of us because all of us, when given the opportunity, we defend ourselves. We defend ourselves as much as 
impossible, yet the Lord doesn't do it. And you think of all of the ways that he could have defended himself. You think of all of the things that he could have said to to prove that he was who he really was as the Messiah. You think of all of the good teaching that he had given to these people. You think of all of the questions that he had answered. You think of all of the men and the women and the boys and the girls that he had healed who were lame and blind and leprous. He, He could have even said, hey, I actually just got off raising a guy in Lazarus from the dead. I've raised a little girl from the dead. He could have defended himself in all of those ways. Yet when he's standing before Pilate, he opened not his mouth. He could have jumped into how he was actually God in the flesh and how he experienced before time the the intricate relationship between Father, Son, and, and Spirit. He could have told them about God way more than they even knew, those intricacies. But he opened not his mouth. But it's in that last little bit that has gotten him in so much trouble, isn't it? That his claim to be divine was actually what irritated them so much. That's why they they call him a blasphemer. This is the whole reason he is under this scrutiny. So you you think about it. the, The side that we see of Jesus, of course, as we've watched him all the way through this book of Matthew. And you you, you see that he uh, has healed a bunch of people, right? He's gone around and he's raised people from the dead. And that's a great guy to have around, isn't it? But then you consider the things that he has said. To have somebody running around calling himself the son of God. When the chief priests and the scribes hear Jesus call himself the son of God, they hear him say that he is equal with God. And we know this from John 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so when Jesus says, I am the son of God, what the Jews hear is, I am equal with God. And they want to kill him for it. And now they have their chance. They got him before Pilate. And it seems like Pilate is trying to drag some of these answers out of Jesus. Verse 13. Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? So he wants Jesus to defend himself. He wants Jesus to throw out some answers. But he opens not his mouth. And So here he stands. The just king before the unjust king. Governor, And also let it be known that even as you look at history, it is known that Pilate was the kind of man that you could buy off. He was not a just man, but Jesus opened not his mouth. The second thing I want you to see is that he was despised and rejected by men. Simply put, you boil that down, Jesus was hated. He was despised and rejected, even though he had never done any kind of evil. Something to which Pilate even says in verse 23, when the crowds are chanting chanting to crucify Jesus, he says, why? What evil has he done? He was an innocent man who had never done evil, standing before a wicked man in Pilate and a wicked crowd in the Jews. They were the ones who should have been despised and rejected. They were the ones who should have been rejected by the Christ. Yet instead, he was the one who was despised and rejected by them. And Pilate does something that's kind of interesting. He apparently has some kind of custom every year at the time of Passover where he would set a prisoner go, let let a prisoner go. And we're not given too much information, but we see that in these verses. And so Pilate decides that this year's convicted criminal that he would release would be a notorious guy named Barabbas. 
This Barabbas was a great thief. Beyond that, he was an insurrectionist. He was a rioter. He caused disturbances of the peace. He was even known for being a murderer. These men were, who were insurrectionists were really the equivalent of what we would know as somebody who's involved in guerrilla warfare. These are the kinds of guys that you want behind bars. These are the kinds of guys that have committed atrocious crimes. These are not the kinds of guys that you want to mess with. And so this was a man, Barabbas, who deserved to die. In fact, there are some who believe that the three crosses that were made were for the two men that were on either side and then for Barabbas, actually, in the middle. In other words, at minimum, Barabbas was a man who deserved to die. The name Barabbas... If you look in, in the Bible and you see a certain name, like when Jesus refers to Simon and he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. When you see the word Bar before a name, that means son of. So son of Jonah. But we have here in Barabbas, Bar, son of Abba, father or daddy, right? So Barabbas' name literally means son of the father. Isn't that ironic? Who do you want, crowd? Do you want the son of the father or do you want the son of God? And of course they scream for Barabbas. The exchange of Barabbas is certainly a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us all. The innocent going to the cross in place of the guilty. I was eight years old when uh, the, the whole criminals or the, 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 the trial of O.J. Simpson was going on, but I slightly, I remember some of it. I remember uh, that it was very televised, talked about all the time, on the news. We'd come home from school and my mom would turn on the TV. No internet in those days, kids, uh, when I was eight years old. But my mom would come home and we'd flick on the TV and she would catch up on the trial. And, and, and all of America was the jury, weren't we? Right? I mean, do you think that he did it? There have been other profiles since, but I remember even just that, that iconic scene of O.J. putting on the gloves and the gloves wouldn't fit on, my, on his hands. I remember my mom being like, of course the blood made the, you know, the gloves shrink and everything else. But there have been so many iconic things even since then. You think of a couple of years ago with Casey Anthony trial, right? That you know, she had been um, accused of killing her daughter. And then you have um, the other one, where the great Patriots tight end, right? Aaron Hernandez, he... Apparently kills a couple people, and he's still um, going through trial for that. We would have had at least a couple more Super Bowls had he not uh, yeah, had that struggle. Anyway. But we watch those things, and we read up on them online, and we decide, right, if they're guilty or not. Is O.J. guilty or is he not guilty? Is Casey Anthony guilty, not guilty? Or is Aaron Hernandez guilty or is he not guilty? And here the crowd is. Is Jesus guilty or is he not guilty? What does the crowd decide? Do you knowingly take a guilty man in Barabbas that's a well-known criminal? Or do you take the guy who has apparently blasphemed? And they say, give us the guilty man over the innocent man. Give us the murderer over the healer. Give us the thief over the man who had, who had fed thousands Give us Barabbas. Jesus was truly despised and rejected by men. And the apostles did not forget what happened on this day. In Acts 3.14, we see Peter say this. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. The holy and righteous one on this side and the murderer on this side will take the murderer. The interesting thing is that I think Pilate 
is giving the Jews a choice that he views as very easy. Certainly, they're not going to want a guy like Barabbas back. Certainly, they're not going to want an insurrectionist. Do you want Billy Graham or do you want Ted Bundy? Do you want Billy Graham or do you want Charles Manson? I think we'll take Billy Graham. It's not even a close call, is it, to what a rational thinker would want. Yet they want Barabbas. He was despised and rejected by men, yet he opened not his mouth. He was despised and rejected by men. Third, he was oppressed and afflicted. Look with me at verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And so it's obvious that Pilate sees Jesus as innocent. But he sees that a riot is about to begin. He washes his hands of Jesus, which was not a Roman practice. This was a Jewish practice that was very symbolic to him, to them. Taking that cup of that water, washing his hands in their sight. He releases Barabbas, has Jesus whipped, and begins the process of the crucifixion. The Romans would take what is called a flagellum. It had a a wooden handle, it had leather straps coming off of it, and tied into those leather straps were pieces of bone and metal that as the, the man doing the whipping would swing it, it would wrap around the person's back. And so they they took Jesus, they tied him to a pole, stripped him of his clothes, and whipped him with that flagellum. Quite literally, oftentimes exposing the bone and exposing even organs at times, depending on how far they went. So that, that bone and metal grip into the back, rip off the back, bringing skin and muscle with it. And this is what they did to your Lord. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Many times when discussing the flogging of Jesus, we we think of the uh, 39 lashes, the 40 less one lashes. That was a Jewish custom. That was not a Roman custom. The Romans were really restricted by how exhausted they would get when they were whipping your back. They could whip you as long as they wanted, essentially, until they exhausted themselves from doing it. And I think that Pilate has Jesus whipped for a couple of reasons. First, Pilate is hoping to appease the Jews. He knows Jesus is innocent. So he just has him whipped and hopes that the Jews would be appeased and, and not have any more problem with Jesus. But then the second reason uh, was that this was customary. Before putting a person on the cross for crucifixion, they would weaken the person by whipping them, bringing them closer to death before he actually got nailed to the cross that would eventually take the life. And so he opened not his mouth. He was despised and rejected by men. He was oppressed and afflicted. Finally, he was led to the slaughter. The whipping was really only the beginning. The soldiers take Jesus and they basically all stand around him like a bunch of bullies around a kid in a schoolyard to flat out mock and harass the Lord. Jesus confirmed that he was the king of a kingdom that is not of this world. And the Roman soldiers apparently pick up on this and they begin to assemble a mock wardrobe for this king. They strip him of his bloody clothes. They put on him a a robe of scarlet. They fashioned a crown for his head. They got him a, a reed, which was basically a stick that would be his scepter. And they finished it off by kneeling before him, hailing him as the king of the Jews having absolutely no idea who he actually was. This is a bit of a light illustration for how heavy this text is, but 
I know we've told some of you in person this, but my wife and Nora went to Frosty's Donuts in Gardner a, a year or two ago, and Nora sees a couple people, and she starts talking to them. And Bethany goes, and she finds a seat, and then Nora comes up to Bethany, and this was when Nora was still figuring out some grammar, and she says, what's him's name? Talking, you know, referring to the guy that she was just speaking to, and Bethany says, I don't know. Why don't you go ask him what his name is? And so Nora waltzes back over the guy. As you know, she's not really that shy. And she says, what's your name? And he says, my name's Governor Paul LePage. And, and Bethany got home, and she tells me that story. where It was actually Paul LePage, and she, Nora's talking to him. What's your name? Governor Paul LePage. And Bethany had no idea that it was the governor of the state. And so... Bethany gets home and she tells me the story and I'm thinking, how do you not know who the governor of the state is? And what's incredibly obvious is that these men are before the king and they have absolutely no idea who they are kneeling in front of in a mocking way. There was nothing to even give them a a hint as to who he was. I'm sure LePage was dressed well and so forth, but yet no idea who he is. But Jesus had nothing like that. In fact, we're told that he had nothing about him that was attractive or winsome in that way that would cause them to look at him and think anything more of him. These Romans have absolutely no idea that they are standing in front of the king of all. They thought that they were dealing with a simpleton Jewish guy who had stirred up the religious rulers. But he could have said one word and they would have been flattened. One day, these Roman soldiers will kneel again as everybody will kneel at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. And the Roman soldiers, when they take that bow, there will be no mockery. He really is the king. And at this point on Good Friday, he is so close to his throne. He was so close to going home and being with the Father. The kingdom that he had preached for three years had commenced and his reign would begin. And I was struck as I was studying that although Pilate washed his hands of Jesus, and Jesus never washed his hands of us. That through all of this, he, he never got to the point where he was done with us. He, he could have called all of those, those 12,000 angels, right? That he could have, like we saw him do recently, say a word and knock the crowds down. But he stands here willingly, mocked by the men that he had created, tied to a post that he had grown, whipped by leather and bone and metal that he had made. And he did all of it willingly. And what's true is that Judas didn't send Jesus to the death by himself. Do you realize this? That when you consider Judas and his actions in the betrayal, it's not Judas who sent Jesus alone to the grave. It's not Pilate who sent Jesus alone to the grave. It's not even the crowds who sent Jesus alone to the grave. We all sent Jesus to the grave. And as we've looked at this familiar text together this morning, I wonder if any questions have come to your mind. Because that's the problem when we look at familiar texts like this, is that we don't have any more questions to really ask of it because we're so familiar with it. So, oh yes, Jesus was whipped. Yes, he was mocked. Yeah, they put a crown of thorns on his head. I've seen the pictures. I've watched the Passion of the Christ. We have Easter every single year and talk about this. Next passage, please. But I hope that there is at least... A one-word question that comes to mind when you look at all the things that Jesus did, and that's why? Why? Because this is a grievous injustice. This is a horrific event. 
Like we saw even in the news recently in Syria with Assad and his wickedness unleashing a chemical gas onto innocent people. Or in Sweden, a guy ramming a truck and killing people. Or in London, a, a few weeks ago, a man shooting other people. Or even John was telling me this morning that a couple Egyptian churches got ransacked. Why? We sense and we feel the injustice. And we fall on our knees and we beg God to make things right because this kind of injustice makes us angry. And we struggle with this kind of thing all the time. That why, does, why do good things happen to bad people? And why do bad things happen to good people? We, we, we feel like sometimes God's nose for justice is wrong. It's off. And we look at a sweet and innocent child Loving, mother-appreciating, disciple-making man in Jesus. And he goes and gets treated like a worthless criminal. Why? It was for you. Your why. Again, God commended his love toward us in that why we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And how specific is that transaction to you? The death of Christ, the things that he went through, How specific is that transaction to you? How closely do you identify with his death? The truth is, and I hope you realize this as truth, is that we deserved to be handed over to the Romans. We deserve to be accused. We deserve to be stripped and mocked and beaten. We deserved to pick up a cross, drag it to the site of our death, and to die. But Jesus did it all. He did it all. He bore your burden. He didn't even utter a complaint. Not not one, well, let's get this over with. Not one, I can't believe I'm doing this for them. Not one, I'm not really sure they're worth it, which is remarkable because we're not worth it. He could have said, they're not worth it. And he would have been right because I'm not worth it. We're not worth it. So often we like to find ourselves in the biblical text, don't we? We like to read a story in the Bible and we like to insert ourselves into the story somewhere. And so we read a story like David and Goliath and we heard a sermon at some point that said, yeah, you need to be like David and you need to slay the giants in your life. And so what we're really doing is we're setting ourselves up as the hero of the story. right? So I'm going to be David and I'm going to be the hero of the story and kill the giants in our life. But we're not like... David, are we? We're far more like the casting crown song, right? Where uh, uh, the, the, the army shaken in their armor wishes they had had the strength to stand, something like that. We are not the hero. We are the weak ones. And so when it comes to a passage like this, who are we? Certainly in some respects we're a whole lot like the crowd, aren't we? Before coming to Christ, we could not have cared less that Jesus was crucified. But who are we more specifically? We're Barabbas, aren't we? That in a very real and spiritual sense, we are Barabbas. That we have spurned the grace of God. We have been angry at people which means that we have killed them in our hearts. We have lusted, which means that we have committed adultery in our hearts. We have stolen and lied and cheated and cursed and gotten drunk and have sinned a million times. We are the guilty. 
And so when Barabbas gets set free, and you see Jesus hung on Barabbas' cross, be reminded that Jesus hung on your cross, that he paid your debt, that he gave you his righteousness, and the life that you now live, you live freely in Christ, because the innocent Christ stepped in for the guilty sinner, hung on that sinner's cross for sins that he had never committed. And like Barabbas, we walk away free because the innocent was exchanged for the guilty. Thank God. Lord, we thank you for for treating those who were so unworthy as though we were. And loving us enough to allow Jesus to go through all of this. And we think of Barabbas, and we think of who knows how he finished out his life, but to think that as he saw Jesus, a man who had committed no sin, no crime, and knowing himself that he had committed egregious crimes, to walk away scot-free, And it's the same with us. That Jesus stands there innocent while all of, the, all of us who have committed egregious crimes and sins walk away free. And we thank you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.